Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. I've been a fan of our guest for many years. His book, The Great Influenza, has been read by millions around the world since it was first published in 2004. And interest in it has been revived as we grapple with COVID-19. This book and his other writings are particularly important because they not, not only are good storytelling, but because they help instruct us on how to prepare for the future. As Confucius said, study the past if you would define the future. Unfortunately, it is apparent some of our current leadership did not get the memo. Today, I would like to focus not so much on his 1918 book as another one of his titles, Rising Tide. This book is about the 1927 Mississippi River flood that so well captures the root development and the result of a great crisis. It is a book I frequently buy for friends. John's writing both provides an origin story and brilliantly weaves together the policies and realities that explained how a crisis and the response to it could shape American politics in the 20th century. And it is this book, with its focus on the implications of a crisis, that I would like to discuss with him today. I am so pleased to be able to welcome esteemed author, historian, and fellow New Orleanian, John Barry, to our podcast. Thank you, Chip. It's fun to be here and a pleasure to talk about something other than COVID-19 or the 1918 pandemic for at least part of the conversation. John, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I, you know, went to Brown, went to graduate school in history, expected to be a historian, dropped out of grad school, coached football, was a journalist in Washington covering politics for a little while. First book was on politics called The Ambition and the Power. Really turns out to have been about the rise of Newt Gingrich, largely uh, back in the late 80s, the loss of democratic power in the House. Wrote a book with Steve Rosenberg at NCI called The Transformed Cell, Unlocking the Mysteries of Cancer. Steve is the guy who really, one of the major pioneers in immunotherapy, had to develop the first therapies, interleukin-2. Uh, did the first gene therapy experiment. Uh, then I wrote Rising Tide, the book you were talking about, and the influenza book. Then a book on uh, separation of church and state, where the argument began back in the 17th century, Roger Williams. I tell people I get bored easily. That's why there's large, you know, a lot of different topics in there. Two of the books sort of involved me in policy, not sort of, did. After the uh, influenza book came out, I got involved with the Bush administration in 2004, 2005, 2006, thereabouts with the early meetings on, on developing pandemic preparedness plans, sort of conceptualizing them. And then after uh, Katrina, I was asked by, to chair by the Louisiana congressional delegation, a uh, bipartisan working group on flood protection. And I ended up serving on the levy board protecting most of Metro New Orleans. This was an unusual board. They required passage of the state constitutional amendment to create it. It was really a board of experts from North Carolina, someone who chaired a National Academy of Sciences working group on coastal risk reduction from California. We had the chief of floodplain management for the state of California. We had 
past president of the American Society of Civil Engineers. We, I mean, it was really an incredible uh, levy board. Then we kind of shook up the state of Louisiana when we decided to uh, sue the oil industry over coastal land loss. Got pretty political. And then uh, started working on another book, and which I've just put aside. Really haven't done anything on it in the last, I guess, four or five months and been focused on COVID. Great. So let's talk a bit about one of your books. Uh, one of the things I found most enlightening in The Rising Tide was this notion of how the fundamentals can impact crisis. As you well describe, in the late 19th century, there was this competition for the future of the Mississippi River between James Buchanan Eads, who favored floodplains, and an engineer from the American Corps of Engineers, Edward Humphreys, who favored levees. Humphreys eventually prevailed, but Eads was ultimately proven correct. When the perfect storm came, the levees were a disaster and exacerbated the conditions that resulted in the Great Flood of 1927. One of the many interesting aspects of this first part of the book leading up to the flood was the public policy debate and the mistakes that were made. These failures didn't just happen during the crisis. There is a lot that leads up to it. In your opinion, what were the big mistakes that resulted, frankly, in our disastrous response to COVID? And what can we learn from the lead up of the 1927 flood, where we now might have avoided things in terms of the pandemic today if we had acted better in the past, if the fundamentals had been better arranged than we find them? Well, those are questions I've never been asked. Uh, let me start out by quoting another uh, philosopher. You quoted one. of I often quote Hegel said, what we learn from history is we learn nothing from history. The flood book, you know, Humphreys and, and Eads, uh, I said one had genius, the other had power. Eads was a genius, and he was an extraordinary man, one well-deserving of a dozen or two dozen biographies. It's amazing nobody's written about him. Humphreys had the army and the corps behind him. And that was, you know, all ego. Uh, in an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, I guess uh, my the first sentence was, when you mix science and politics, you get politics. That's what happened in 1927, or I should say in the construction of the flood protection system prior to 1927. Incidentally, that flood was an enormous event. As a percentage of GDP, it was 40% larger than Katrina and something like triple the impact of Hurricane Sandy. So it was just an incredibly large event. But back to your question, when it, go, it goes to COVID, you know, the plans were in place to respond reasonably well, I would say. The, the problem is, and it's always a problem with the plan, that you need someone to execute it. You know, I, I think the uh, Bush administration started a planning process that ended up with a pretty good product and pretty detailed as to you know what triggers you should look at when you should pull them what evidence what you know everything was in there but either nobody read the plan or certainly nobody followed it the problem was at the top and you know in fact in 
you know, all the talks that I gave after the influenza book came out, I routinely said, and I gave, you know, quite a few and participated in, in several pandemic games and so forth. I always said the key issue is going to be getting somebody above the pay grade of a public health commissioner to follow, to heed the advice. And, you know, clearly we hadn't gotten that in the United States. I don't know how that relates to the rising tide, but. Well, you know, actually, I think it relates directly to the rising tide. And and we have we have a situation now where the president has clearly passed on to the governors the responsibility uh, and the and the decision making. And if we go back to the rising tide, we had President Coolidge appointing Secretary of Commerce Hoover uh, to be in charge. Was that a model? I mean, did we need here to have a true czar like Hoover was in 1927? Well, that would have been a good model. Hoover actually did a great job in that, and it got him elected president of the United States. Compare that to basically every disaster that's happened in the last 30 years, and pretty much all it's done is damaged political figures. But Hoover was a logistical genius and a very, very smart guy. And if you give him a problem, he was an engineer, a very good engineer. He started out in poverty, made himself into the, one of the wealthiest men in the world. Very, very capable guy. Coolidge did nothing with the federal government. The Red Cross was sort of the equivalent of FEMA, but didn't get any direct money from the government, raised it all privately. But it was a quasi-governmental organization. So that would have been a good model. And as you say, Hoover was a czar, although he delegated a lot of authority to local people on the ground, which in a, in a fast moving disaster, you really can't have to do. You can't centralize everybody. He gave them tremendous support and tremendous guidance from his central position. And he was actually put in the chain of command above the army so he could order the army to do something. So in that sense, it would have been a very good model, but the law was very different then, or you know, we didn't have a federal government as we do today. The agency, everything was much more informal. So you, know, you do have incidents of national importance and things like that, whatever the exact titles are of these things. Certainly, we could have centralized a lot better, should have. Practically everybody else in the world has. So I guess you're right. I guess that could have been a model. During the uh, Katrina period, uh, I personally worked hard trying to help the, my hospitals during the rising waters. And one thing was clear to me that in Katrina, it was every man or every organization for themselves. You could not depend on the government at any level at that point, if you did not have the capacity to take care of yourself, you were really in trouble because the government response in that Katrina context was so lacking. Are we so culture bound as Americans that that is just the way it's going to be? Because it feels like that way somewhat in the COVID situation. I mean, do you think this is a question of leadership or maybe even a question of culture? I think it's leadership, 85%, period. You know, if you had someone who took charge, you know, 
Trump could have guaranteed his reelection if he had taken this seriously, addressed it. The only time in his presidency he's cracked 50 percent was a day or two after he declared that he was at war. We were at war with this virus and people wanted to rally around him. And he could have taken charge, could have directed all sorts of things. I think the institutions are there. You know, they have quite a bit of power uh, under emergency circumstances for FEMA or CDC and so forth. I think the opportunities were there and people were begging him to do it and he wouldn't do it. Let's take a different tack now. Underlining problems are frequently exacerbated in crises, whether it was the Great Flood or the pandemic today. The socioeconomics related to race and class came out in both. In terms of the treatment of black people in in Mississippi or the poor people of Plaquemines Parish downstream from New Orleans, there clearly were class and race issues in 1927. And clearly, those class and race issues have been exacerbated in the context of COVID today. Can you make comparisons and where do you think these impacts of the crises, both of them, uh, one led and, and the other could be leading? Well, 1927, they sort of made a point of perfecting the exploitation of people without political power, whether they were African-Americans or poor whites outside New Orleans. And uh, this time around, it's more the situation itself, the context in which people live their lives has directly affected outcomes and mortality. But nobody's aimed a gun at it, whether African-Americans or Latinos whose socioeconomic situation makes them vulnerable. Just the circumstances and and the way our whole lives are set up. You know, someone has to take a bus to work somewhere where there are a lot of people, then obviously they're at higher risk. In 1927, it was much more direct. African-American sharecroppers who wanted to leave the area and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. They, they were, that simply wasn't allowed. They were penned in refugee camps and with guns pointed at them as if they were in a prison camp. So obviously we're not in that situation today, thank God. But the effects are, are pretty dramatic. Obviously the differences by race, and particularly I'm living in New Orleans right now, you're from New Orleans, you know, in Louisiana, is, is one of the worst places in, in the country for that disparity. Looking to the future, your books showcase the importance of the fundamentals. What big changes in American society and politics do you foresee coming from this COVID-19 experience? I know it's hard to prognosticate in the midst of it, but from your view, what do you think the future holds from what we're experiencing right now? There's sort of two competing currents running through things right now. Number one is, I think people understand the need for a strong government response. And number two, the government's not going to have any money. Every state government and the federal government, the budgets are under unbelievable stress. But, But I think there's a recognition that this is something government should have handled much better. And so the political will would be there, or at least desire, I don't know about will, to shore up the government. 
We've had, since Reagan, 40 years of people saying the government's the problem. Well, the government's the problem because people running it have said the government's the problem. And obviously, Trump has denuded his administration of tremendous amount of skill and expertise purposely. So there'll be a strong desire to rebuild that, but where will the money come from? The most obvious thing to predict would be that public health would get a lot more investment than it has had in the last several decades when it's eroded rapidly. And that's an easy prediction to make, but I'm, I'm not going to make it. Because once you get more than a couple of years out from this pandemic, I mean, certainly immediately in the post-pandemic phase, I think there'll be investment. But once you get a couple of years out, and people, people have very short memories, and given the pressure on the federal and state budgets, which has probably be the highest in our history, including right after World War II, I don't know what's going to happen. I think the scientific establishment is, you know, certainly gained in uh, uh, respect and prestige. I think the scientific community has reacted with extraordinarily well. I mean, you know, people who normally compete or cooperating, interdisciplinary. I mean, everybody has come together around the world to try to solve this problem. But when you look at, you know, and that's certainly a plus. How long that will last? I think there might be some long-lasting impact from, from the cooperation in the scientific community, which probably won't really be noticed by the average person, but I think could have significant impact. In terms of other things, you know, everything from architecture to, uh, you know, I mean, office space. I mean, one, I think ventilation is one of the most underappreciated things that you can do to alleviate, you know, dilute virus and so forth and so on. But most of the new buildings that have been built in the last several decades can't open the windows. You know, will that change? Maybe. Will there be fewer office workers? Maybe. I think that depends on how quickly and how effective a vaccine gets here. If you have a highly effective vaccine that gets here pretty quickly, I think return to normal may come a lot faster and a lot closer to the pre-pandemic normal than most people expect. But if it's not that effective and we really have to essentially live with this for an extended period of time, and I mean by that more like 18 months or longer with face masks and social distancing and so forth, then I think there, there would be changes. I think the people who are, you know, anywhere from say eight years old to early 20s right now, I think this will mark that age group, uh, just as, you know, I'm old enough that Vietnam and the civil rights era sort of imprinted itself on, on my psyche. But I think this event will probably be big enough that kids and uh, teenagers and young adults who are living through it, that this will be somewhat of a defining part of their life. John, it was such a pleasure uh, speaking with you today. I just really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow CHIP at CHIPCON. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders. Oh,